0: morning, Soma, on this Lockdown Sunday. Today we'll be looking at the last in our series on the 4Gs. We've explored God is great, glorious and gracious, and today we'll be exploring God is good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for bringing us together remotely around your word. We pray that you'll be with us this morning with our unsettled hearts and in isolation, that you'll... Give us minds that can focus and take in the truths that you have for us to understand. And we thank you that you are our good and you are good wherever we are. Amen. So, how are you going this morning? I can't hear your replies, but if I could, I imagine good thanks would be among them. We probably get asked this question several times a day. When we answer in the affirmative, we are indicating that we're going okay. Good thanks is a general response to the person on the checkout or the colleague in the tea room. But when we consider the phrase, God is good, I'm sure none of us think that it means that God is doing okay. I want to tease out this key word a little before I move on because it's such a slippery one. It's one of the binary pair, good and bad, good and evil. In a title or a brand, it's a bit of a hook enticing the audience to take a closer look. For example, you might have watched the television series, The Good Place. You might have bought something from the good guys. If you're getting long in the tooth, you may have watched the Clint Eastwood classic, The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. And if you're an old rocker from the 70s, you might have listened to the Beach Boys, Good Vibrations. There's over 40 different meanings for the word good. And that's why it's important for us to understand what the Bible means when we use the phrase God is good. Some definitions that we're probably aware of and we probably use include morally excellent. The idea of someone being a good and upright person that does the right thing. That's probably our key definition. That we use in everyday life. But then there's good that sits somewhere in between fair and excellent. It's that bland good. It's not a very distinctive adjective. It's a no no in my students' creative writing. Or it could mean of high quality, or kind, or palatable, unspoiled, or favorable, or cheerful. Or attractive, or sufficient, or competent, socially appropriate, dressed up, a decent amount, loyal, or skillful. So what do we mean when we say God is good? We're used to the term being applied to God and we read it regularly in the Bible. We sing about it in our songs. What do we mean when we sing, you're a good, good father? It's what you are. Dave drew our attention to the tradition of the African-American church and their call and response of affirmation. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. What do they mean when they declare this? Old and New Testaments make the declaration over and over again. Psalm 25.8 Good and upright is the Lord. Psalm five nine. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. And James 1.17 Every good gift, and perfect gift, is from above, and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, or shadow, or turning. Which of the many definitions of variance do we apply when we read these verses? I know that before looking into it deeply, my understanding of God's goodness was a bit of a mishmash of various meanings and not something that I could clearly articulate. J.R. Packer in his classic work, Knowing God, narrows the options down helpfully. He suggests that within the cluster of God's moral perfections, there is one in particular to which the term goodness points. Generosity. Generosity means to give to others in a way that has no mercenary motive and is not limited by what the recipients deserve but consistently goes beyond it. It is the focal point of God's moral perfection. The goodness of God is ultimately his divine generosity. He is the provider. The generosity of God is a generosity that we cannot experience except from his hand it's freely given, it's inexhaustible. The reference we just read in James reinforces the unchangeable nature of God with whom there is no variation or shadow or turning. He is not, like us, generous one day and stingy the next. He's not going to run out of goodness. His mercies are new every morning. He does not become burned out with being generous. The truth is, God is generous all the time, and all the time God is generous. There is no maybe. He's good when I walk in a land that's plentiful, where streams of abundance flow. And he's good when I'm found in the desert place, and I walk through the wilderness, or I'm in lockdown. My circumstances may alter, but God's goodness does not. Each of our lives contains testament to God's goodness. When someone gets up and gives their testimony, that's what they're doing. They're showing this is how God has been good to me, how he's been generous in my life. And the story of God as revealed in his word provides powerful threefold evidence for his goodness. Let's just look over that quickly. Firstly, in the beginning, the good creation of Genesis was and is provided so that God's creatures will flourish. They'll have all that they need. Including sustenance, shelter, purpose, companionship, and employment. In Genesis 1, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. In chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And further down, In verse 21, God provides a companion for Adam. In the first three chapters of the Bible, God engineers the whole creation to care for and ensure the flourishing of the beings he makes in his own image. The psalmist reflects this in Psalm 145. You are good to everyone, and you take care of all your creation. By your own hand, you satisfy the desire of all who live. The classic hymn, Count Your Blessings, urges us to simply look around and humbly reflect on God's extravagant generosity to his rebellious creatures. But God's goodness extends beyond the tangible to the spiritual in the form of forgiveness and redemption. Throughout the Old Testament we read of the people of Israel and how they rebel against their God time and time again. Psalm 107 reflects on their history, recognising the consistent turning away of the Israelites and the generous response of God each time they cry out to the Lord in their trouble. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever, declares the permanence, the unchangeable nature of God's goodness and generosity. The psalm speaks of God's deliverance of his people. It identifies them as the redeemed of the Lord. Saved out of their distress, lifted out of their affliction. God is generous to his people, all of us, materially and spiritually. Clearly the defining act of God's generosity can be seen in his gift of that which is most precious to him. John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, we talk and sing about this extraordinary gift so often that the depth and scale can become lost on us. Why is he generous? Why does he give so extravagantly, not of the leftovers, not of the extra, that he gives his one and only son, not because he had to, but because of love. Jesus, who could, by calling on his Father, have at his disposal more than 12 legions of angels to crush his enemies, chooses to go to the cross in obedience for love of us. The generosity of God is such that this sacrifice is now sufficient for the sins of all humanity. It gives over and over and over again. So as Christians who believe the evidence that God is unfailingly consistently good, It's nonetheless a reality for all of us that often, part two of our topic, we look elsewhere. Knowledge of the truth gets overlaid by how we feel or what we encounter and our view becomes distorted and clouded and we doubt the generosity of God. In recent times, perhaps less so in the past, the problem of suffering has led people to doubt the goodness of God. This is a key objection for the non-believer or the atheist, let alone the Christian. Countless books have been devoted to reconciling these two truths, God is good and we suffer. The implication of the objection is that if God is generous, he is not generous enough, either due to a lack of willingness to help to ease our burdens or due to a lack of power. In this instance, the believer or non-believer falls into the trap of equating our circumstances or our distress with evidence of God's weakness or indifference. We might resonate with the question, how can you believe there is a God when there's so much suffering in the world? We translate the eternal promises and Jesus promise to be with us even unto the end as, if God is real or if God is good, why doesn't he fix my pain, heal my distress? Pain and distress can cause us to doubt the generosity of God and misinterpret our understanding of his goodness. This topic is so vast and wide, there's not time to address it fully here. But I recently read a helpful and really short book by Amy Orr Ewing, Where Is God in All the Suffering? In this little book, she explores some common answers to this dilemma, but she also suggests some new and powerful approaches, which I found really helpful. The obvious elsewhere that we look to find goodness, rather than holding on to the goodness of God, is in what we've come to understand as our modern idols. We see the idols, whatever they may be, money, power, relationships, work, appearance, comfort, etc. as more generous than God. We believe that they will provide what we need, that they have what it takes and that they're ultimately good. They make us feel good in the moment, and therefore we see them as satisfying. The ramifications of placing something else in our hearts other than God has been an understanding that we as a church have been growing in over the last few years. Dave's sermon series many years ago on the Ten Commandments has stayed with me as a powerful expose of the importance of recognising and repenting from the idols in our lives that dilute the joy of our relationship with God. However, rather than considering idols as a whole, I want to look for a short while at the broad topic of the idol of self, the God we often put before God. The idol of self is flourishing in our contemporary Western world. It actually is the dominant viewpoint. More than at any other time in history, it is the spirit of the age. Modern philosophy and psychology influenced by key thinkers such as Rousseau, Nietzsche, Freud and Marx have largely removed the source of responsibility in life from the individual to society. A liberal, secular worldview cannot tolerate any external authority that trumps the self. With the rejection of God as the creator, sustainer and provider, it falls to humanity to provide and perfect. And this broad world view, echoed in politics, literature and media, filters down to the individual. When there is no God, I have to work this out myself. This is a recent reversal of the way in which human beings have thought of themselves. Rather than seeing ourselves as sinful creatures in need of a saviour, the commonly held, though perhaps largely unconscious, view is that we human beings are naturally good. Left alone, removed from the shackles and restrictions imposed on us by society and social structures, we will be free to live out our authentic selves. This is an idea that's gaining more and more traction. Our recent sermon series, Shifting the Dial from Individual to Community, was a response to this. Modern culture teaches that who you are and what you are made for can only be determined by you. The sacred is not the wisdom of a community or the teachings of a faith, but the specific and unique truth that resides in each one. When each individual finds, identifies and declares their own truth, then happiness and fulfilment will be found. The message is, I'm good. The reason I don't always feel good is because I'm restricted and repressed by outside agencies that seek to control me for their own gain. When I throw off these oppressive burdens, the goodness of who I am will allow me to access true satisfaction. It's an individual interpretation that I can find only within myself. Modern life says, look inwardly to find truth and goodness. Be generous with yourself. We know at a head level that anything other than God is going to disappoint us, especially our own selves. When the reference point for goodness and authenticity is the self rather than divine authority, it keeps changing according to how we feel. We need to keep looking and yearning for something else to satisfy us, a new image, a new distraction, endless travel, maybe not at the moment. When we see finite and limited things as the ultimate source of fulfilment, we will remain discontented. And there is a difference here between striving for excellence and using our gifts and moving on to the next big big thing because the current one is failing to provide what we think we need. We are certainly not immune from the temptations to seek external affirmation of our chosen identities. We all consume and live within modern culture. We all have friends or work colleagues, family members, who subscribe consciously or unconsciously to this view. We are surrounded by it. Without the work of the Spirit in our hearts, without the work of the Spirit binding us together in truth and love, our view of God as provider, as the only one who is good, is bound to be diluted by the relentless, seductive, attractive voice of our modern culture that tells us the same lie that the serpent told Adam and Eve. You can be like God. Our faith in God provides us with an eternal reference point that will never change and never let us down. We don't have to find our own truth. It is not hidden. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 declares "But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. God provides what we need, even to the point of providing us with a profound understanding of who we are and what we're made for. You may declare the praises of him. This is our purpose, and it puts our focus squarely back where it belongs and takes it off ourselves. So I know that God is the provider and his mercies never fail. But what am I to do with my wandering heart, my doubting mind and my fickle will? Our songs and hymns reflect our dilemma back to us when we consider their lyrics. The classic hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, confesses that we are, I am, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. It's in our nature. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it, says Jeremiah. The heart is able to convince us of many things. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Thanks for that teaching, Dave. I've thought about it a lot. My heart often desires to see myself as good. My will chooses to act on it and my mind affirms my choice. Unless the spirit breaks in and convicts me of where true goodness lies. Cam in his sermon on the glory of God drew our attention to our focus on self and how we often change our behaviour in order to gain approval or to avoid disapproval. This is often the fruit of the root problem of doubting the goodness of God. I found the work of Tim Keller in his very small book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, sorry, self-forgetfulness, to present a helpful antidote to our reliance on self. He draws attention to what Paul says about himself in 1 Timothy. Paul declares that Christ came into this world to save sinners of who I am the worst. Keller points out that Paul uses present tense, am the worst, not was, to indicate that this is a current, not a past reality. However, the amazing thing about this confession is that Paul isn't crushed by it. This is not self-abasement. This is not a pity party. He is acknowledging his sins, but he doesn't connect them to himself and his identity. He does not judge himself in view of either his successes or his failures. Paul is saying something astounding. He says, I don't care what you think, and I don't care what I think. He has reached a place where he is not thinking about himself anymore. He has taken the focus off self, it's not his idol. This is freedom and it can only be found when we look to God as the only source of goodness. So what could practicing self-forgetfulness look like in the life of a disciple seeking to grow? We regularly sing the song, Lead Me to the Cross which is a rich reminder of where to fix our gaze. The words of the chorus point to this idea. Lead me. Lead me not to myself, not to myself for goodness and answers, not to that confusing mix of emotion and ego, but to the cross. Bring me to my knees. Make me aware of who you are and who I am. Help me to understand where I am in relation to you, Lord. Lord, I lay me down. I lay me down. My self-focus, my wandering heart, my desire to go my own way. And then this remarkable line Rid me of myself. This is what Paul is saying. I don't need to prove to myself or others that I'm good because I'm not. But it doesn't matter because God is good. His mercies never fail. And if I look at the cross, if I understand how forgiven I am and how reliant I am on God, I will gain the amazing blessing of self-forgetfulness. This is not nihilism. It's not wiping ourselves out. And it's not numbing ourselves, or distraction, or failing to acknowledge sin. Self-forgetfulness means that we can forget about the external and internal voices that define us and rest in God's goodness, believing His definition. Forgiven, delighted in deeply loved, being embraced into our true identity. We belong to him. He leads us home. A great blessing in preparing these thoughts for today has been the prompting of this mind shift in my day-to-day life. Keller skewers the truth about our internal lives when he writes, think about it. It's very hard to get through a whole day without feeling snubbed, or ignored, or feeling stupid, or getting down on ourselves. And sometimes we might feel the opposite, smug and satisfied, when we've done something successful or achieved. In either case, we're approving or disapproving of ourselves, looking to ourselves for the answers, seeing ourselves as the provider. What if, in these moments, Rather than looking at myself and being cocky if I've done well or crushed if I haven't, I look to the cross. I stop in the moment, pray, confess and receive. I recalibrate so that what God thinks is what matters. I don't react to my self-esteem, low or high, but I acknowledge that through Christ I am esteemed by the creator of the universe. This is a rhythm we can practice. In presenting this talk this morning, a newbie in the full sermon arena, I have struggled somewhat with the need to please and the fear of disapproval. I want to do a good job. And when these emotions have become urgent, it's helped me to meditate on the truth of God's goodness. I can stop being the good one because I'm not. And doesn't that take the pressure off? And I can simply point to the one who is good. I don't need to be good. I need to grow. And a consideration of all of the four Gs is a rich source of fertiliser. Let's pray. Lord, you alone are good. You are the provider of everything we need. We pray that this truth will be one that we will understand more and more as we learn and share lives together. We pray that in our DNA groups, in our gatherings, in our GCs, that we will speak these truths to each other about how good, great, gracious and glorious you are, that we'll consider the choices that we make and how they may reflect our lack of understanding in these truths. We thank you, Lord, that you are always with us. We pray that your spirit might convict us of this, particularly in times that are difficult and that we will draw on each other in order to shore up our understanding of who you are and what you've done. Please go with us into this tricky week, Lord. Bless us, and we thank you for all that you are and all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen.